0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Here we are. And I, right,
1: I just want to welcome Jess here and welcome all of you here for this uh, mini-retreat. And we're just going to turn it over for him to Jess. You know who he is. And if you don't know who he is, you will find out about him as he goes through the day. Okay, Jess? I'm Jess, I'm a grateful sexaholic. We're going to talk about discovering the solution, walking through the steps. And what I'm going to be doing here is passing on to you some of the most precious knowledge that's been found, which is what us early sexaholics wrested from life as we made our tremendous mistakes and fought our battles with lust. And oddly enough, uh, for so many of us in the fellowship uh, in the early days, uh, we just had each other. And we had to just compare notes with each other to see what worked. And to give you an idea of the predicament that we're in, and I, it, what I'll talk this first hour about is the world's worst disease, sexaholism. To give you an idea about it, I live in a house with two recovering alcoholics. And they have, let's see, 78, 16 Yeah, 16 years of sobriety. And and one of them is an alcoholism counselor, so they've been around the barn. The other one's an advisor to one of the outstanding therapists in the world. So these people know what the hell they're talking about, and their opinion's worth something. And it's a news I know will be not very pleasant to receive, As my old sponsor Vince used to call it, he says it's like sitting at a cold, at a poker table with a cold deck. And if you've ever done any gambling, know what the hell that is, is. The card just won't come. And this kind of stuff is a cold deck. Because what my wife and son have found, and they say to me, Hey, Dad, here's a person on the phone. It must be for you because they're crabby and cranky and arrogant and obnoxious. They must be a sexaholic. Now, we don't like to put that tag on any one of us, but that's you and me, bud. Uh, we are sexaholics, and we have the world's worst disease. In my early days, in earliest, uh, the first conference I was at in Phoenix, uh, it was about the second or third conference we had as sexaholics together, we invited Pat Carnes in, who was an outside expert, to speak which we don't do that kind of thing anymore, but we were looking for knowledge and needed it. And the tapes that I made of that thing got lost. I had a lousy tape recorder, so unfortunately But the most precious thing he said I have, and that is, he said, it in three to five years of sexual sobriety, you will go through early adolescence. In seven to ten years of sexual sobriety, you'll go through early adulthood, and I was uh, 57 when I came in this program, so what Pat had to say to me, in effect, was when you're 60 to 62, you'll start being like 13 to 16 years old, that's how much time I had lost. Let's see, 7, uh, 57. When you're 64 to 67, you go through early adulthood, the 18 to 22 years. So that was really, uh, you know, you'd think you'd hear that and just want to shoot Pat Carnes for saying it or wanted to commit your suicide yourself because of the hopelessness of it. But I've got an optimistic bent to me. In fact, one of my students one time said, uh, Jess, why are you so optimistic? You know, it's killing me. I said, well, I don't have any particular reason for being optimistic. It's just that it pleases me. And and I see now that an optimistic bent of, of temperament is something we're given as part of the package that we receive. Uh, there is a book out uh, however called learned optimism by a guy named Siegelman and a number of my pessimist friends who've had difficulties with their pessimism have really benefited from it it's so a book currently out in self help book but my uh and I had been around the 12 step program for 17 years so I had a I, I had a hunger for this thing and uh so I didn't take Pat's news as something horrible, I took it for, I saw the hope in it, and that is uh, if I put my time in on this program, I will gradually grow up. Can okay, I mentioned those two things to, to give you some understanding of the overwhelming depth and the seriousness of our illness? And I've never, I've got a huge collection of uh, AA tapes, I've got 22 uh, Chuck tapes and about 20 Clancy tapes alone. And I've listened to those over and over again. I've had 12-step sponsorship. You know, so, uh, I really, that's I think it was 27, yeah, about 28 years in the program. Yeah. And as a student of the program, but I don't count those first 17 because I was on a a, a drug and you can't get this 12-step program when you're on a drug. I could get the information, I could get the knowledge, but I couldn't really benefit from it until I got in here. So what is this lust thing? And and, and again, the biggest mistake that I see in all the sexual addiction talk and programs and writing and stuff is the emphasis is on the acting out. And people want to get rid of this or that acting out, and boy, if I could just clean up a little, like old Vince used to say, if I could just, you know, stop drinking and clean myself up a little bit, I'd just be just an awful nice guy. Well, i got good news and bad news. The good news is that you can stop and you can clean yourself up, but the bad news is you ain't going to be an awful nice guy. You're going to be just a pretty reprehensible person, just like the the same reprehensible person I dealt with in myself. And still see there. But that's, that is it. And so it isn't the emphasis that I see that is acting out is, is, is a, it's really a tremendous distraction to us that focus on acting out. Our problem is lust. Because it is lust that fuels the acting out. Even more it is lust that causes the acting out. You cannot lust and get away with it. And furthermore, I'm coming to see now even more that lust is acting out. The lust that I gave up at the end was lying beside my wife, fantasizing having sex with the woman that I had the affair with and had given up uh, seven years earlier. Okay, I'm not acting out, I'm just lusting. The hell, I wasn't acting out fact, not every night. There are always two women in that bed. And the thing that, the power of this thing from, to destroy and harm relationship is something that we've just recently found out about relationship. And that is that men and women are tremendously different in the way they view uh, sexual infidelity you may have seen some of that, that uh, is that uh, is sexual infidelity in our genes thing. And a lot of guys are using that to run around with, yeah, it's in my genes, they can't do nothing about it. The answer is it's in our genes. Uh, it's do a lot of things, but we better learn to do something about them. And uh, but what they find is that for a guy, the ultimate horror for him is for his partner to have sex with another person. For a woman, the ultimate horror is for her husband to be emotionally intimate with another person. The physical part of sex isn't the big deal. It it, it isn't that it isn't a problem, but it isn't the big deal. So, okay, uh, most of us sexaholics are, are men, and so when we're lusting, we're emotionally intimate with another woman in that lust. And that's why so many Essanon wives are just, you know, are going so nuts with this addiction, and they can't figure out why, and they haven't got anything to pin it on. And we're doing this thing that we're, quotes, getting away with. You know, that's the biggest lie in the world. A lot of people come up to me and want to, you know, and pers- other personal issues than this, too, and they say, you know, Jess, I really hate this person next door to me and I want to tell them to do so and so. And you see this in, look at letters in Dear Abbey a lot. Uh, uh, but I don't want them to know. And I want to tell them, hey, what in the world, how dumb do you think people are? Would you please name me somebody who's around you who hates you and you, you don't understand that they hate you. You can't possibly get the message even without them using the words. But Nobody's that stupid. But we all think other people are that stupid. So uh, I was one of those people who quit my acting out well before, long before, really. I came into this program in the sense of frequent acting out. I wasn't acting out. I'd given up that affair seven years before I came in here. Uh, I'd given up most of the other forms of acting out. They'd squeak out on me because of the lusting, occasionally. But the the daily thing that my wife had to live with was my lusting, and particularly, was that uh, some of those sex fantasies that I used, in any time there'd be difficulty with her, I would fantasize about some woman who thought that uh, uh, or I was convinced loved me. Well, one of those women tried to blackmail me. So, what the hell kind of love is that? Okay, that's that way I had of jumping out of where I was into someplace else. Or the the thing at night. Okay? So, uh, there's an attitude in our society. In fact, I'm working on an article for Uh, Christianity uh, Today magazine about lust. And the idea is like when Jimmy Carter uh, said that he lusted and confessed to it, the general reaction, as I read it to to that and part of people, was, well, how quaint, you know, lust. That's some old word that we talk about in the Bible or we hear mentioned in the Bible, and it's got nothing to do with modern people. And in fact, a lot of uh, sex therapists advise their patients to use sexual fantasy and lust to what they think is improving their sex life. But we've also got people in Sexaholics Anonymous who didn't masturbate until they went to a therapist, and the therapist told them they better get on hook and start masturbating, and they did, and found they were addicted pretty heavily, <laughs> and uh, they were gone. Now, it's not the blame of the therapist, but the point is, Is that's how little understanding there is out there of this lust stuff. Okay. Now, our fellowship has conducted a beautiful, beautiful experiment with lust. And you see here a tattered remnant of the survivors. This is just like the Nazi army in front of Stalingrad or Napoleon's troops in Russia. And what came back were a few guys with wagons, you know, dragging a few wounded buddies with them. Okay, that's what's left. Uh, it's a Mark, another Mark uh, here who had AIDS. And I th- was with him in, in, during the course of his death. And he was telling me about it, he was in N.A. N- and he said, yes, he said... I was in N.A. and uh, was acting out sexually, and I would try to get myself to go home after work. He said, but my feet just wouldn't take me home. And uh, he contracted AIDS and, 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 and died. And uh, I, it's so easy to make that AIDS death disproportionate because of our emotional reactions to it. It, in real sense, is of no consequence that he died of AIDS, in the sense of, of any of us, when we're lusting, we are dead to life. We are just as dead to life when we're lusting as Mark was when he was dying of AIDS. We had, in fact, we had essay meetings on the phone with him, out of my place, because he couldn't go to meetings at the end. Now, his wife was having a little trouble with uh, handling my phone calls for some funny reason. But but this lust stuff is tremendous, serious business. And by and large, my feeling in the fellowship is that despite the prophetic vision that Roy had, and despite the constant reference to himself as a lustaholic, Roy is emphasizing lust as much and as hard as he can possibly emphasize it. But by and large, we in the fellowship are not getting the message. And that's why I'm spending this much time and this first thing to really go into the, the record with you on what those of us who came in and didn't understand much about lust either, And thought it was, uh, just sexual lust. And I will talk here about the dangers of just sexual lust first. We'll get some of the other stuff later. But in my, and also the other thing that I haven't seen, and we don't have any medical opinion to support this, but I think, I think our bodies react to lust differently than other people's bodies. Uh. I was uh, in another, I was in a 12, another twelve-step program, and, uh, and, and uh, these old alcoholics were helping us get it going. And so this old uh, Skid Row alcoholic named Vince, let's see, Vince had see, was 30 years ago. He had about twenty years of uh, AA sobriety at that time, and he started sponsoring me because he could see I was nuts, but he didn't know what the chemical was. So he started sponsoring me, and, and alcohol doesn't do anything for me. I said, Vince, I said, alcohol doesn't do anything for me. I get a little high from it, or I can even get drunk and and slop around uh, once in a while, and I don't, I don't think I've been drunk ten times in my life. And uh, most of the time, just alcohol just puts me to sleep. He said, well, of course not. You're not an alcoholic. He said, alcohol takes me to the land of impossible dreams. Alcohol takes me to the land of impossible dreams. Okay, how in the hell do you understand that other people aren't like you? How do I understand other people aren't like me? Again, Clancy says it so powerfully on his tapes. He was in this advertising agency. And he saw this ad for a billboard for Smirnoff vodka, and he said... How about an idea? This is for an idea. When Smirnoff vodka hits your, hits your stomach, it goes boom better than any other vodka. And the art director looked at him like he was nuts. And that time Clancy's teeth had all been broken out because he'd been, had him kicked out in a drunk tank down in Phoenix. He was in the mail room. And he didn't, wasn't a very pretty sight. So the guy just said, you know, are you kidding? You know, get out of here. Take your dumb mouth and your stupid looking mouth out of here. And so he went whining to his sponsor, who happened to be, um, Robert, Robert Taylor, set the actress, and was a great father figure in the old days, I think so. Anyway, Bob. And he was whining to Bob and crying about his, they didn't understand him there. And, and Bob said, well, of course not. You dummy, that's what I've been trying to tell you. He said, alcohol, when it hits the bottom for them, it goes, it's only for us that it goes boom. He said, that's why you have to go to these stupid meetings. And they don't. Okay? That's why I have to come to these stupid, beautiful, wonderful, greatest thing that ever happened meetings, and they don't. When lust hits me, I'll tell you, it takes me to the land of impossible dreams. I, in fact... I was at a, an early day uh, a, uh, SA meeting down in Phoenix with a guy I was trying to sponsor in and didn't work very good, but didn't have much. He had a lousy sponsor, so no wonder he couldn't come in. But anyway, we were talking about it. And I was saying, "Boy, well, when I get that high of going on after a woman, I said, that has got to be way up there. I've never used the drugs, the hard drugs. But he said, I'm in the member of Narcotics Anonymous also. And he said, I've used uh, needle heroin. And he said, that high of going out after a woman is a bigger high than needle heroin. Now, is that a bigger high for everybody in the, con- in the world than needle heroin? No, I don't think so. We don't know these things yet, but I've got some credentials. I'm a Ph.D. psychologist. I know a lot about physiology. Uh, I live with one of the smartest women in the wor- women in the world. We've studied this topic, worshipped it for all these years. The way I see it now is sexaholics get their crank turned by the lust and the lust-produced internal drugs of adrenaline and the other things that happen, whatever the hell they are, And it's some big complex, that even the physiologists haven't got it nailed down yet, and they don't have to. I just know that for me, and that narcotics addict, you see, heroin works on him and i guess heroin works for everybody but uh the thing is lust worked on him just as powerful as that heroin did and we all think well that's wow that's the biggie and lust works on me and it works on other sexaholics so overwhelmingly powerful that it is like being swept away with a an avalanche or a tornado or something like that so that this lust stuff is, how can your thoughts, just a few thoughts, make all this difference? Very simple. we got—we got the greatest chemical factory in the world right inside us. And more and more, as we're getting more and more sophisticated uh, medical research, we're seeing that. Uh, that immune system, for example, is so tender and, and delicate and is so easily damaged. And we know that they're just an outpouring of drugs, and we can feel it. One of the guys in uh, that I know, one of the old timers, he got divorced from his wife, a second wife. First was uh first was a person who didn't understand his overwhelming need for sex, and, and she was just a prude and stuck up. And then finally they had to get divorced, and so he married this other gal, and she was a sexaholic from the get-go. So, it was a beautiful union. Only one little problem. is Every time they would have a problem, they would sex it away instead of solving the problem. They would turn to lust and sex to solve the problem and take it away. And then, guess what? The next day, the problem comes up again. So, finally, the woman couldn't stand this and divorced. he gets divorced a second time. By then, of course, he's created a second family, a bunch of kids, and... Uh, So she's living in a separate place, and of course, uh, sex always got to have boyfriends, and so she's got her boyfriends, and he's going nuts. And so she comes by the house, and and they start embracing and, you know, being sexual with each other, and he said, well, can I come over to your house tonight? And he said, well, we'll see. Or he said, will you come over tonight to my place? And he said, we'll see. And they're divorced. So he was, uh, and the night before, he'd been out the porno shop and seeing the videos and he was halfway drunk on lust then. And then he continued to get drunker on lust as he was waiting for her to show up. He said, I was so drunk on lust that my just my cheeks were just tingling. You know, you've had that sensation where you're just so high on uh, excitement or fear or something like that. You'll feel body sensations. And so she didn't show up. So finally, about two o'clock, he goes out and starts looking for her, finds her house, her, her car, At her boyfriend's house, comes in that house, they're sleeping, takes off his clothes, naked, crawls on his hands and knees down the aisle of this trailer, uh, or this quarter in their trailer, and, and crawls in her room, or goes in her room, and then tries to get in bed with her while she's sleeping with her boyfriend. Now that is real close to insanity, my friend. Real, real close. And what was the vehicle? Don't call it desire. Don't call it sex. Uh, don't call it a hunger for acting out. That man was so drunk on lust that he was totally out of it. So the boyfriend, of course, calls the police and the police come in. There's two police officers. This guy's a pretty tough guy. A guy built like Mark, you know, and owned uh, singing Mark. And uh so, and, and, but this guy is an aggressive football player and is, you know, get it done. And so they got this guy, um, uh, he's fighting with two police officers, one on each arm, and they can't either, one, one, each guy by themselves can't hold that arm that they're fighting against. So finally a third guy comes in, strips off his pants, so he, na- well, no, he is naked turns him upside down, takes his feet and holds him up in the air, so then he can't get any leverage. And they carry him off to jail and put him in jail. Well, that causes a certain amount of consternation in a smaller town when that happens to you. And, uh, but the point is, what's the drug? Lust. You know, it... Uh and we don't think about it. We say, well, are these, and of course our sick mind is allowing us all the liberty that we can squeeze out of it and we're bargaining and haggling. I'll give up anything else but not that. And of course, what's the drug that we give up last? Like I, you know, I've been so deep in 12 step work and I'm, I hear people and they, they first they've got a this program and then they got a that program and then finally they come into SA. And I always thought, well how come they gave that drug up last? I understand now. Do you give your best drug up first? Not if you got any sense. Not if you're screwed up, you know, as we are where we got all this pain and because we ain't never done anything about it the bonfires get bigger and more frequent and we got more and more pain and we got more and more problems and we got more and more need for the drug. Now, as near as I can see, as I look back into my childhood, I had an unbelievable, uh, intense curiosity about sex from the earliest time. I was, When girls would be sitting around in a circle, I'd be trying to see up their pants. And, and, and this stuff is kind of tough to describe because uh, there's such a thin line between what we think is normal and what we did. And the answer is, uh, I think the best example I've ever heard of it is the story Roy tells on himself of where he and three of his uh, cohorts, uh, Roy was a Silicon Valley uh, tech writer, uh, he and three of his cohorts were standing outside this restaurant and this gorgeous, sexy gal walked out, and one of the guys said, wow, boy, I'd love to you know, go to bed with that one, and, and they're making these comments and... Roy is staring in fascination, of course, and horror, and so they go in and eat. And then the the conversation switches to, well, how's this project coming, and did you see the game, And, and this and that. And Roy can't be with it. His mind is still in that woman. And at three that afternoon, they're back at work, and he's still thinking of that woman. So okay yeah his reaction initial reaction to to her was just like there and just like every you know a lot of guys his uh, kids wanted to wonder to had sexual curiosity and were had their prank turned by those sexual stimulation Okay I think there's a difference for them it didn't become such a big thing for me it was And I think those there's another way you can look at that, and I don't like that way of looking at it either. You can say that we took something, and then because we took it to extreme and, and to excess so much, we cultivated in a sense. Lust is a drug. I don't think so. It's just like me. I cannot drink enough to cultivate myself into an alcoholic. Because it just won't do for me what it needs to do for me for me to be addicted to it. And my guess is that for many of us, if not all of us, I think there is such a thing. We see it in alcoholism as a person who is a kind of a borderline or they drink pretty much socially as near as we can see. And then all of a sudden they cross over a line. I don't really quite understand that. And there might be some of that in here. But I, I, to me, the safest thing, I think, for a sexaholic to think of is the path that I take, which is, hey, Uh, I see an awful lot of sign that lust does all kinds of things for me. It doesn't do for other people. And just exactly what the dynamics of that were, I don't know. And the chances are, it's probably very similar to alcoholism, where alcoholism shows itself instantly in so many cases. In some cases, it takes longer, but it does eventually show itself. I think that's a better explanation, really, of alcoholism than that some people are pure alcoholic and others develop, you know, a sensitivity to it. But to me, that doesn't work because alcohol has got to do something special for you to be addicted to it. Why in the hell would you use a lot of something if it didn't do something big for you? Why would you go through those terrible problems in life that you have to do to be an alcoholic and stay alcoholic uh, if it, if there wasn't a big thing on the other side of that bargain? So to me, uh... Lust really turns my crank. From the time I was young, um, I I look now back. I was raised in a town of 600. So in a little town like that, you know everybody in town, and uh, and you can see things so, so much more clearly because there's so few people. Like there are only in my grade school classes up to eighth grade before the country kids came into our our high school. There were only 20. Kids in our class, 10 boys and 10 girls. Okay, who did I gravitate to? I see now I gravitated to the two or three guys who were in one of the, uh, there wasn't any guy in my class that was sexual like me. You know, see, there'd be 10 guys in my class that I knew about. Uh, there was a guy a year older than me who lived in our neighborhood, and then a guy a year older than him, two years older than me. And the three of us were the ones that would walk home from school and they had their porno, uh, they were not, they showed me this porno little cartoon book they had and boy, I tell you, that was a feast for, you know, that's good for five, ten years, you know, about, and, uh, and then I found one other piece of pornography and see, I was, we're talking, uh, see, I was, say, 12, when 20, I, 26, 38. 38 to 42. Hell, we didn't have, you know, now we didn't nowadays we not have color pictures in our textbooks. We didn't even have very many black and white pictures in our textbooks. It was mostly line drawings. So uh, our pornography was not very advanced. Uh, listening to the radio was a big thing and we didn't do that, you know, <laughs> a ton because we had radios that were you know, big enough that you ain't going to carry one around your pocket out there. Uh so that Again, but it, to me, illustrates uh, my sensitivity to the thing that some crude pictures like that and then pictures of women in underwear in a, in a Montgomery Ward catalog would be uh, adi- very adequately sexual to turn my crane. Well, that's ridiculous. i never forget one time I was trying to ta- talk to some sexaholic. I was trying to find some kind of hobbies or interest that he had that he could develop some stuff to kind of keep himself sober until sobriety came, until real spiritual understanding came. And well, What kind of hobbies you got? Well, he said, I look at women's pictures in magazines. No, no. I mean, I mean like a hobby. <laughs> but, so this is the stuff that I grew up on and I see my fellow sexaholics men and women, having grown up on, is this tremendous preoccupation and absorption in sexual imagery. Uh, Another example was, uh, and the guy that introduced me to masturbation was one of these, the guy that was just a year older than me. took took three or four of us into a boxcar one day and showed us the delights of masturbation. We discovered the wonderful secret and uh, uh, then immediately became compulsive and you know, and I fought that sucker with the help of every religious plea ever known to man and every other kind of thing. Um, not because somebody said it was awful or bad. I, I, and another side of me knew, hey, this is, this is hurting the hell out of me and I don't want to do this and, and, and a part of me didn't want to be at the control of something, you know, so destructive and harmful as this was. So, so this is the, that that developed then into this masturbation fantasy I had where I'd go to bed at night and parade 10 of the gals in town across in front of me in my fantasy. And so, so that got to be the high point of the day when it get dark and I go to bed and, and masturbate. OK, that's that's a that's a quite a quite a bit of a distortion in a 13 and 14 year old guy's day. And the drug was doing it. And this drug was. Was uh, there was nothing that I experienced in my life that could come anywhere as close to that masturbation? Okay, I'd sit in my classroom and fantasize having parties. Let's see, that would be about sixth grade, so I would be like eleven, twelve. I'd sit in my par- uh, cl- uh, classroom and fantasize having parties for the three guys and the three gals in that little class that we were close to. But I never asked my mother to have a party. In fact, if we would have had a party, I see now, I would have been like, uh, well, I would have been like a fish out of water. You know, because I was so socially stupid. And so I can, you know, that, as I reflect back on these things, I can see more and more what, what Pat Carnes was talking about. Because he, here at the time he spoke to us, see, he'd run a, he ran one of the early sexual treatment centers. And he watched his patients that he got off sexual addiction gradually recover. And so those were observations. Those weren't philosophical observations as his part. Those were reports on his experience. The things that he'd seen happen up until that time. So here is this drug of lust. Ultimate crank turner. I see now, as I understand what growing up is about, it is having a problem and then facing. That's what normal people do. Now, we didn't spend much time with normal people, around normal people, and there was a good reason for that. Partly, we were not attracted to normal people, but there's a bigger reason for that. Any normal person in their right mind ran from us like, you know, like we were the worst thing that could happen to them, and so often we were. You know, you, uh, well, you've seen it yourself in different situations where you are the, where somebody comes up to you and they are totally out of it. Say you're the in guy in high school, And they want, some gal wants a date with you and she doesn't know from Shinola. And so she's, you know, uh, shining up to you. Or some guy who doesn't know from Shinola is shining up to some gal who's really got it. And saying, well, could we have a date next week while I'm busy? How about the week after while I'm busy? Well, name some time in the future that we could, you know, have a date. And of course, there's no time. And... That's the way we were to normal people. Now, it isn't pure that. There were plenty of us who had plenty of relationships to to some degree because each of us had a part of ourselves that was precious and important. And that part of ourselves shone out. But it was being constantly corrupted and degraded and being held back by the sick adolescent, non-growing part of ourselves. So I would chase women, I see now for the excitement of it, but then when I would catch one, I wouldn't know what the hell to do with her. So that was my pattern of dating in, in high school and college. I, I went with one gal steadily in high school near the end of our time and then went into the army. And she wrote me after a series of two or three letters and said, I can't have a relationship with you. It's like having a relationship with a dependent puppy dog. And that was me. I just, oh, I need you so. And and we see this so when a sexaholic is threatened with divorce. You know, they, they become just whining baby little puppy dogs. Oh, don't leave me. You can't leave me. Well, the wife can very logically say, well, damn it, if I meant so much to you, why in the hell weren't you able to? To demonstrate that in some way, shape, or form previously. And of course the answer is simple because we were such babies. We didn't have any ability to demonstrate anything. We just wanted to whine and be a dependent baby. So, this dependency, you know, of ours was, uh, of mine, I saw developing there. And then, uh, I, I tackled various challenges in the Army and uh, like when uh, my first uh, thing was I, I was um, in the Air Force and I was an Army uh, college training unit in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, at Coe College. And there were two, um, there was the USO and we could meet the, some girls. And so I met the banker's daughter and uh, was really interested in her and I'd go out with her on Saturday nights. And well, then I met the other banker's daughter and I'd go out with her on Sunday nights. Uh, and typical sexual holiday deal, you don't settle on one for God's sakes. Well, then, of course, I found another gal, and she was a frightened of me. She thought I was fast. Well, I hadn't done anything. I just had various thoughts, but I hadn't done anything. And she, well, where did you get that idea? Well I just, the word out is among the girls that you're really fast. and so we were riding home that night. I'd taken her to this dance and and we'd, uh, we went by this Pillsbury sign. And the old Pillsbury uh, neon signs and the advertising in the old days. Uh, I saw it and started to smile. She said, What are you smiling at? She was sitting on my lap in the back of the car All Oh that's uh, nothing, nothing. Well what do you you know, so she coaxed out of me what I was saying about it. well, the Pillsbury motto was eventually, why not now? So that's what I was smiling at. And it was it was not as sexual as she took it or as it might sound to me now. But <laughs> We got to her house, and we got up on the sidewalk, starting to, up the sidewalk to her house, and she set a new record for the 50 foot dash. She was through that door and slamming the door behind her and said goodbye through the screen door, locked. I thought, what in the world is going on here, you know? What's happening to me? Poor, innocent country little boy like me. And, uh, well, it turned out that, uh, that she found, she, was attracted to me for some reason, and I found out later the why uh, she's alcoholic. But uh, she was going with a, a guy who was a pilot and was stationed in Italy, flying in Italy. So then she had this war within her of could she love too, and she found she could love too. And uh, so I, she loved me and she loved him. Well, then I was in a different town. I was hitchhiking up from St. Louis just to be with her, typical sexaholic deal again. I'm in St. Louis, I get off duty there at Friday noon, go out and stick out my thumb and it's, it's, uh, early Saturday morning or sometime Saturday morning that I show up, sleep at the YMCA for a few hours, go out on a date with her Saturday night and immediately go out on the road and start hitchhiking. I got it 24 hours to hitchhike home to, to St. Louis and my base. Madness. Well, I hit one town one weekend and find that her boyfriend is in town. And the answer was that she couldn't love two when both of them are in the town the same weekend. So, I got second deal on that. And again, that's a typical sexaholic thing. Oh, whoa, God, do we love self-pity? That is one of the most delicious desserts you can ever give a sexaholic, is the opportunity to feel sorry for themselves and wronged. Oh, God. And... And like I say, I hear them whining on the phone about their miserable, terrible situation. And fortunately, with some of them, I can laugh and we laugh together (laughs) and have a ball laughing at the stupidity and the self-centeredness of ourselves, but being removed enough about it to see the humor in it. But so that, you know, that was my life now. There's fortunately, and uh, I know in my life, and I've seen an awful lot in in your lives, there's a God who is has got two things in mind for us. One has our our finest welfare in mind, and has a hell of a sense of humor. So, that God hooks us up with the, the exact right person. And that's our soulmate, and we get married to them, and then go on our merry way as though nothing had really happened of any consequence, and uh, go about our business. And then we keep getting pulled in with this tether that we laid down, this contract that we made to this person, and the consequences of it, legal and emotional and psychological and financial and otherwise, in society-wise. And so I met the person that was the greatest person that could, for me, that could ever happen. But, uh, you know, before too long that stupid lust was in there, jocking things around and wanting things to be different than they were. And it was, uh, Unfortunately, in a way, it could fit within the normal realm, although I don't know that that's any special. I see most sexholics manage to fit their behavior into the normal realm too. <laughs> or at least most of it. And say, well, I've got this, this little problem. I act out here or there in that way, and that's the only thing I got a problem with. And I want to say, hey, your whole life is a, is a disaster area. When the hell can't you see that? And of course, I can't say that usually. Uh, but, I, you know, to outward appearances, I was a father and a successful businessman and, uh, and a devoted husband and, uh, we had, uh, my first daughter was cerebral palsied and, um, usually a handicap like that will destroy about half of the marriages. We were able to go through it, uh, and we had another girl real quick and my wife was Catholic so, like Clancy said, I became a distributor for small Catholics, and uh, I had five kids. And um, and uh, like I say, I was a, a uh, I was born a Baptist, and I had this real spiritual hunger as a young man. I went to the Baptist minister when I was seventeen years old, and I said, "There's got to be something more," because I as when I was baptized at twelve, I, I, as I went from 12 to 17 in that little town, I watched us and the adults in that uh, little church uh, try to be good like the Bible told them to try to be good. And they could get it done about half the time, but in half the time they were doing just terrible things. And I could get it done about half the time, and I was doing terrible things. And I thought, you know, how, what's wrong here? And they would sit down in the front row of the church and pretend to be great. And then I knew what they were like. And I knew what they were doing and how harsh they were. And like the minister, he preached in uh, these frayed, this frayed suit. And uh, the congregation didn't get him a new suit because, he, hell, he's just a dumb minister. And what does he do but preach? He doesn't deserve anything. And They're all going through the Depression and they're all poor. So who gets him a suit? My dad doesn't go to church. He just drops my mom and me off if we can go to church and Sunday school. And he goes down to the bar and sits there with his buddies. But he takes up a collection down at the bar from his buddies to get a suit for the minister. I'll never forget seeing that little spiral book he carried in his pocket with the list of the names of the guys of, you know, Redberg Setter, one dollar, Nels Geen one dollar and so-and-so, 50 cents, took up a collection for the minister to buy a suit of clothes. And it wasn't the front row sitters that did that. And so I was seeing these incongruities. And so I went to the minister at 17, like I said, and said, there's got to be something more. So the luminescent spirit part of me was there from the beginning and looking for openings. And that brings up a point that I think is one of the most misunderstood points in these whole 12 steps. I've sat in these church basements and listened to people cuss God and cuss their religion. I happen to have an exceptionally fine religious training and education by the most loving kind of people. But I hear them cuss God and religion. And like Chuck says, he said, if you took all the Baptists and the Catholics out of AA, you could have a national conference and a phone booth. And people say, I'm a recovering Catholic, or they cuss their fundamental Christian upbringing and what have you. You know, there's a very good chance that the only reason that we're here is that that luminescent spirit part of us was buttressed by that religious and spiritual and moral training we had and without it, we might not have been here. The thing that we cuss might have been a very deciding factor in helping us push, get over the edge and get in here. Now, I, you know, um, so each of you here, like me, are simultaneously the rottenness of the rotten, And simultaneously with that, the luminescent spirit that is in each of you and me is totally, it's like a diamond. It cannot be touched and damaged or hurt in any way by anything we've done. So that we are like a a thing mounted on a gimbal. Where we can show whichever side the situation calls forth in a way. So we can be the rottenest of the rotten and we just flip it over. The time that I'm most struck by that is when I'm sitting at a essay meeting, especially when it's a newer group of people, and their programs are, you know, so shitty. And they're getting so little out of their program and they're fighting away their addiction with everything, they fighting away that addiction as well as they can, but on the other hand justifying so a whole bunch of behavior. And then I'll watch a new person come in and do their first step to that group. I will watch how those people treat that first step person as a first step person lays their garbage out there, and I see five, ten, whatever number of people that are on that meeting being like giants striding the earth doing things that are almost well inconceivable to me that they could do that that they could give such a loving response back to that person who's just just done that first step i have never seen a response by any person of all the first steps i've first step meetings i've ever sat in i have never seen a dumb one or a bad one or a hurtful one Now, what the hell is going on that we can rise to those heights when it's called for? And to me, that is the power that we bring to this program. And that is the power that our presence has here. But that is the thing that lust, then, acts as a veil to and screens from us and from the people around us. Well, the... In... uh, In essay terms, uh, my lusting career from the time I got married, though, until the time uh, I started acting out, was exceptionally undistinguished. It's so pale in comparison to each of your distinguished histories that I hate to even put it forward as being of any consequence. (laughs) You would laugh me right out of the hall. (coughs) But then all of a sudden, I had a heart attack at 35 and uh, became a college professor and started teaching in college. At about 38, uh, and was able to work with men and women students beautifully. That would be 63, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Then in, all of a sudden in, uh, two or three happen. and I think we make such a mistake often we, our society is full of all these great psychologists who've got all these dumb answers to why they've got the problem and they can put their finger ideally right exactly where it is. I say, hey, I'm a psychologist. You're talking like you've got ten times the psychology education I have and you don't know nothing. Don't you realize how stupid your analysis is? And then, as a psychologist, I know that the, the evidence behind the best of the formulations, even if the person wasn't being stupid, is lousy. Because I've been down a lot of those alleys, and they're damn blind alleys. There's nothing down there. You look at the lives, uh, I, as I have, of the psychologists. Uh, Freud. Freud died because he was addicted to smoking, and he died with his mouth eaten away in a kind of a circle. And he held his cigar with a metal spring that, that held his cigar. He couldn't give up that, even though the cancer was eating up his. Eating up his face. Okay, he's a man whose personal life and whose uh, when Carl Jung wanted to go the spiritual path in his psychology, the the Jung Freud letters are like a, a, a an exceptionally harsh and cruel father spanking a, a, a dumb son, trying to force him back in, into the line. Okay, so much for the Freudian a uh, contribution in terms of the example that man was able to give us in his life and and down the row i've i've seen too many of them and, and there is too little there in that cupboard but yet there is it is so common and facile today this is no new thing hell in the days of the greeks uh, people were using the facts that uh, one or two gods were not in conjunction in their proper orbit and that's why they did some stupid thing uh, psychology just gives some new excuse. But I, I, did, I do need to say that because there is a, some a suggestion of science in psychology, uh, there is no substance to 99% of what I hear of the psychological justifications it was for why we got this way. So suffice it to say that all of a sudden in 1969 and 70, the volcano blew up. And I was a, I went from a, a a beginning sexaholic to an advanced sexaholic in, within a year. And where in the hell did that come from? And what the hell difference did it make? It's just like Clancy said so well. If I understand the problem, then I can tell you very carefully where the problem came from, but I still try to figure out what the hell I'm going to do about it. Okay? I'm telling you not where I got the problem, but I'm telling you what I'm doing about it. So that lust blew up in my face and I would would pray like here here I was seventeen years in a twelve step program. Well no, not at that time. Um, I was just I was in a twelve step program with twelve step sponsorship. And I would be praying uh, each time that I wouldn't take any action, and I did. And I saw over and over and over and over again my powerlessness. I saw over and over again that the 12-step way of life won't work when we aren't with our peers, where we have the identification with our peers. I've seen guys, uh, with a lot of guys in AA make the mistake, and I've talked to a lot of people in S.A., where the AA sponsor tells them, well, just work the 12 steps of AA on your program. The guy in AA does not realize he's contradicting the very premise that AA is built on. AA is built on the premise of Dr. Bob, or, or Bill, an alcoholic, talking to Dr. Bob, another alcoholic. That's the premise it's built on, identification. Where you tell your story and the other person sees their answer in your story, but you don't tell them. Okay, how in the hell can an alcoholic tell a sexaholic story? And he can't. Thankfully. Okay, an alcoholic and a sexaholic can tell a sexaholic story one day and an alcohol the next. And we found a lot of guys were getting, were getting into AA. Or rather, were becoming alcoholics because their sexual behavior was driving them nuts, or they were drinking to support their sexual behavior, or to take away some of the sting of it. I got drunk and did this or that. So a lot of guys we found uh, that they found S they found S A was their primary problem. Once they dealt with their sexual addiction, the, the alcohol wasn't wasn't an issue anymore for them. So most people kept both of their programs going but some of them didn't. So here I was and I see now I was using lust to drive away some ferocious problems. We had teenage kids going into drugs, getting pregnant, getting married, uh, rebellious. Uh, my wife and I uh, had our difficulties. I had the the, the time of life when uh, I see guys, uh, men and women in their late 30s and 40s, going just going nuts. I see men and women leaving husbands and wives of many years, and just getting tired of them. And I got to have some excitement, and you know, it's just a, a whole ton of madness. It doesn't matter. So finally, uh, then in '76, I was having this affair with this gal, and I was out in a bookstore out in Westwood, California, with her for three days, and I realized. My God, my wife is the person that I want to be with more than anyone in the world. And why don't I act like it? Why am I such a baby that, in there, if, when there's any trouble between us, I put my tail between my legs and run like a dog? And I broke the thing off a day early and went home to learn to try to learn to grow up and be a man. That was in September '76. Okay so I stopped the acting out as well as I could without stopping the lusting, and that weren't very good because every once in a while sex with you know sexual stuff would leak out and ev I walk into a restaurant, I would make damn sure I had the attention of the waitress. well, like at a restaurant today there i don't I don't even remember who that gal that waited on us, but in the old days i I would make sure she paid attention to me, and I thought, hell, that's just normal banter, you know everybody does that. That's what my wife had to go through. And finally she got, she got more recovery. Then she was able to say to me, Hey Jess, get in Sexaholics Anonymous or get out. Now what kind of miracle is this in that she can say that to me? I'm a Montana guy. I'm in the one place in the nation that still has an essay group function. And my wife knows what to do and how to get the SA material. You know, how in the hell? Did, you know, you look at God. It's like you watch a a freeway of traffic, and all of a sudden, everybody else in the freeway is coming right at them, and they all interweave each other. It's like these things you see on 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 uh, movies. You know, where the guy's going right at this six semi trucks in a row, and he weaves his way in and God, how did you make that work out? And that's the feeling that I had. So when Jackie said, get an essay or get out, I picks up the phone, calls the number she gives me. And on the other end, I hear this voice from Kent saying, Yes, it's lust. It's what's in your head that's killing you. And by then I had looked at all these other spiritual programs, I'd done everything I could and nothing would work. And those words were the most beautiful words I've ever heard. And that's why I say I'm a grateful sexaholic. I don't say I'm grateful because I got recovery. I said it a step earlier than that. I'm grateful because I've got this addiction that is so damn tough. My ego is like cracking Plymouth Rock with an egg beater. Okay, I took it took something mighty to crack that damn rock, and the sexual addiction can do it. So if any of you guys are sitting around here, and gals are sitting around here with some eagles that ain't quite cracked yet, just wait, buddy. <laughs> and if you're lucky, they'll get cracked. And if you ain't, you're gonna yeah. die on your feet, no sweat. But the ones that live and stay together, we're going to have one hell of a time. Now I suppose you that don't stay to get, you know, in here, you'll have one hell of a time too, but I don't want to be a part of it. So I got the greatest blessing that I've ever received in my life, that moment. Now Kent, and this is a beautiful point of carrying the message, you don't need to have the message to carry the message. It helps, but you don't have to, because he's out there. He's bisexual, so, you know, he's sure gonna die. And he keeps calling me periodically. You know, every two, three years he'd call me and say, Yes, I'm back in and it's going okay and I'm I'm good now. And I said, Great Kent. I haven't heard from him now for four or five years. And there's no way I can track him down. I tried to. So that's it for Lush, gentlemen, and uh, men and women. And I'm real pleased and I just love you all so much. Thank you so much.
0: I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.